KEI presents From the Archives, a series revisiting our past events. On April 28, 2023, KEI hosted a post-summit discussion revolving around President Yoon Suk-yeol's recent visit to the United States. Communications Director Sang Kim moderated, with Ambassador Kathleen Stevens, Vice President Mark Tokola, Senior Fellow Troy Stangerone, and Director of Academic Affairs Clint Work contributing. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Sang Kim, Director of Communications at KEI. I, today, I'm joined by my colleagues at KEI to discuss South Korean President Yoon Song Yeol's state visit to the United States. Uh, for just a reminder for our online audience, uh, if you have any questions for us, please feel free to put them on the YouTube chat, and we'll make sure to address them during our conversation. And before we get into our conversation, I do want to introduce everyone very briefly, uh, just the title, and we'll get to our, our discussion. So to my right, we have Ambassador Kathleen Stevens, uh, KEI's president. Uh, she has served in many senior positions in the U.S. government, including a U.S. ambassador to South Korea in 2008 to 2011. And to my left, uh, we have our vice president, Mark Tokola. He has also served in many senior positions in the U.S. Foreign Service. Um, and then uh, to my Far right, we have Troy Sangaron, our senior director and fellow, and he has been speaking and writing on a lot of economic and trade issues, which we'll all get to today. And then last but not least, we have Dr. Clint Work, um, our fellow and director of academic affairs at KEI. And Clint has you know, extensive background on US-Korea alliance and more on the historical perspective, which we'll also get to today. So thank you all for joining us. Um, so today, our conversation will be more casual. So please feel free to comment on each other's you know, comments. Um, and of course, we'll address the online questions and so this week has been a very busy week in Washington, D.C., uh, and President Yoon's visit has, is historical in many ways, uh, not only because it's the 70th anniversary of the U.S.-Korean alliance, but it's also the first state visit by the Korean a South Korean president since 2011, so it's been a quite long time. So to get the conversation going, I would like to get everyone's you know, impression and overall main takeaways from the summit this week. There were a lot going on, but I would love to get started with you know, what you thought of, of the, some of the things that came out of the visit. So I guess I'll just kick off. Okay. You know, I think clearly we all knew there was going to be something on the extent of deterrence, and I think you know this was a positive step forward. Um, so, you know, it's good that we've taken and moved this forward, but beyond sort of what we were kind of expecting, I think a couple of things that stood out to me that I just want to put on the table was, you know, President Biden said, you know, we've added cyberspace and space to our alliance. Um, it's still, I think, looking through some of the joint statement, some of the press statements, a little bit unclear, kind of like what he means. Does this mean now that we're talking about in the case of you know, a cyber attack on South Korea, the U.S. will take joint action with South Korea, but necessarily kinetic, but perhaps joint cyber operations. So sort of that, I think, caught my attention. We've talked before about cyber and space being part of our joint cooperation, but it seems to be taken slightly to a new level. And within that context, I think one thing that stood out to me, which is, I guess, partially aspirational, but really, I think, very interesting on the space side, is cooperation on commercial space stations. And, NASA put out in uh, the end of 2021 that they'd approved three U.S. companies to try to develop 
uh, commercial space stations, then we really want to try and commercialize low Earth, low Earth orbit. And so I think that we're bringing Korea into that process. To me, I thought that was actually very interesting, especially because in the Japan visit uh, this past year, there's a joint space agreement, but I didn't see anything in commercialization on that. So Korea seems to be taking a different approach to Japan and cooperation with the United States. So I thought that was interesting. interesting. Yeah, I did notice uh, President Yoon, after their meeting and their, their press availability, he did note that space and cyber security would be included under the mutual defense treaty. That, that was an interesting okay, so statement. So he, he's clarified right? so that, okay. That was a pretty explicit thing to say. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, it's unclear you know, how that will be manifested or implemented. But um, one thing I would say in terms of um, the first impression saying is, is maybe taking just a little step back. Um, and this is something that I heard, I think it was Scott Snyder observed this at the East-West Center uh, event the other day, and I, but I think it's, it's worth building on. When you look at the last 20 years of the alliance, um, and particularly in the early 2000s, which Scott talked about, there was, it was a period of sort of tension and, and questions about uh, what direction the alliance was going, how it might evolve, the fact that it needed to evolve. People talked about it needing to follow what the U.S.-Japan alliance had, had sort of moved towards in the late 90s, where they were... They were putting forth a strategic vision for the new century that, that evolved the different components of the alliance and added to it. Um, and out of those early discussions in the 2000s came the joint vision statement in 2009. And this actually began, discussions about it began under Nomo Hyun and George W. Bush, um, this sort of tension-filled period. Um, and Kathy, of course, you were ambassador when the joint vision statement was released. And it was, it's not that long, um, and it's very aspirational, but it was the first marker of the so-called broadening and deepening of the relationship. And since then, we've seen in 2013, 2015, uh, and, and in other joint statements, uh, an expansion of what was aspiration into much greater detail, uh, sort of listing of, of really detailed functional cooperation. And these statements have gotten quite long because of all these details. Um, so on the one hand, that shows just how far the Alliance really has evolved over the last 20 years. Um, I do, just to play devil's advocate to my own observation, to be a little critical, it does strike me uh, as, I'm curious if, if in other alliance relationships, there, there is this sort of cyclical, constant reaffirmation of this shared vision. To a certain degree, I think that the need to continue to reaffirm a shared vision indicates uh, there are problems with the degree to which we do or don't share a vision. Right, that we have to sort of continue to remind ourselves in our public of this. I think this is a, I don't think it's the only relationship where this happens. And you expect this around anniversaries, of course, um, but I think it's particularly marked in the U.S.-South Korea relationship. I'm not sure. What I can talk about is the U.S.-U.K. relationship. Mm. Um, I think since World War II, we've used the word special relationship every year for all those years since. And so we always have to reaffirm that. Mm. And some people think it might be cliche sometimes. So now and then we talk about not saying U.S.-U.K. special relationship. But if you don't, then everyone asks, what happened to it? So it's not reaffirming is kind of re-mentioning. That goes on. Sorry, did you want to... Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up. If we're going around the table. I guess we are. I mean, the, the big headlines from the summit were definitely the nuclear consultative group and the big investment announcements. So those are the headline issues. But as you're both saying, the, the week was so rich in agenda items. There are a lot of things that were said to pay off in the future, I think. 
in ways we're not even sure of yet. Now, as an example, um, during the speech to Congress, President Yoon made this parallel between North Korea's invasion of South Korea in 1950 and Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022. He talked about South Korea's pledge to be involved in the reconstruction of Ukraine. Well, that's not going to happen tomorrow, but it's likely to happen someday. And given South Korea's prowess in, um, in engineering and construction and infrastructure, they might play a very big role in that. And beyond that, if South Korea does that work in Ukraine, it might give them experience they might eventually use, perhaps, to reconstruct North Korea's woeful infrastructure. If I could just maybe build on this a quick second. Um, I think something that actually isn't known is that South Korea is actually already helping Ukraine build or repair its power infrastructure. So they're providing all of the parts and some of the expertise. But I do think it'll be interesting to see when he says reconstruction, what he means by that and how they'll go beyond sort of what they're doing now to try and help sort of Ukraine get through the constant destruction of war. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, okay. Well, I'd like to pick up on a few of these points, but even before we do that, I want to really back up uh, even a little bit more and um, say for maybe those of who are maybe listening who didn't follow blow by blow everything that happened for the whole week, and President Yoon, of course, is still in the United States and in Boston today to look at biotech and some other things. Um, just sort of a sense, I mean, as, as, as uh, saying, as you mentioned, uh, there hasn't been a state visit by a, a, the Korean head of state since 2011 when Lee Bok was hosted by President Obama for a state visit. But as I think the little slideshow before we started talking, for those who tuned in a little earlier, showed, I think, I mean, every, I'm not sure we had a picture of every one of them, that every sitting U.S. or South Korean president since Syngman Rhee has visited the United States at least once and usually multiple times, and every sitting American president since Eisenhower has visited Korea. So there's been lots of visits, and summit diplomacy has always been a part of it, and kind of affirming things, reassuring at that high level. That kind of performative part has always been a part of it, as well as the kind of substance that goes with it. But but a state visit I, is... is is even more performative, right? So when you say, you know, what was my impression of the visit? I'd have to say overall, I'm kind of thinking, you know, what is the audience? Is much more. What does the audience in South Korea think about this? And what's the what is the audience, you know, here in here in the U.S. Both the kind of, if you like, the the engaged political class and all of that, and the broader audience. What do they take away? What are the big takeaways from it? Um, and I think, it, and there were different, but somewhat overlapping agendas on both sides. I think for President Biden, for the Biden administration, first of all, the U.S.-Korea alliance is a good news story. And so celebrating 70 years since a tragic year in Korea, right, the signing of an armistice after a terrible war, and then the signing of this mutual defense treaty is now a point for celebration. So in some ways, you know, we've continued to redefine the alliance, not just to broaden and deepen to say, but actually out of, out of, a terrible tragedy, the division of a country and destruction has come this, what nobody expected 70 years ago. So I think for the, the Biden administration, that's a good message. And, and because the U.S. has been involved in and can take some credit, hopefully humble credit, for South Korea's great rise. And that's a great message for the South Korean audience as well. Mm -hmm. But we have in President Yoon, someone who came to power saying he wouldn't even further strengthen uh, the alliance. So this is a very important part of him being able to demonstrate as someone who has not been in politics, his ability to manage this relationship, as every Korean president has, but even to take it to new levels. So they both attach a lot of importance to this. And I would say the other thing for the Biden administration is their refrain in foreign policy, in addition to foreign policy for the middle class, which has some implications for this uh, summit and this relationship as well, it's allies and partners, allies and partners, and it's the Indo-Pacific. So the fact that President Biden is hosting the South Korean president uh, as his second state visitor after the French leader is a sign that, yes, it's about allies, 
sometimes challenging uh, relationships, but allies, and about the Indo-Pacific. So with that, I mean, I, I, I was actually so, so I was still I was still ambassador in Korea uh, in October 2011 when Im Young Bak came for the state visit. So so since that was the last state visit, I was kind of thinking, you know, what was different about about this one compared to that one? And I mean, I, I and I don't mean like page by page, like I mean, and actually things like cyber cyber security were mentioned yeah. and space were mentioned. And as Clint said, a lot of these things have been part of the agenda for a long time. But as Korea's growing capacity is made more possible. And as America's need for allies and partners has grown more, more apparent to our own political leaders, that has become more emphasized. But I would say just as, you know, looking at again, kind of the pageantry of this, of this uh, uh, President uh, Yoon uh, surprising everyone, I think including his own aides by giving an entire speech in English to the, uh, uh, to the joint Congress to be being perhaps practically the only time maybe in, in recent months or years that you've had both sides and or even all sides of the aisle in the U.S. Congress stand something like 20 times for applause lines. Nice. Um, that was uh, that was a big moment. It was a big moment for the alliance. Uh, it was a big moment for Korea. Um, but the other thing that really struck me is, yes, we've had these elements here, but we can see how far we've come. And there are some newer elements too, of course, some of which are very challenging, some of which are, you know, offers and promise. For example, the big story of Korean investment in the US, the billions and billions of dollars. Um, in 2011, the story was the free trade agreement and the, uh, the state visit took place the day after the US Congress passed the Korea-US free trade agreement. Hmm. Now, 12 years later, we're not doing free trade agreements anymore, but we have this framework with Korea now uh, where we are talking about all these other areas and where President Yoon has come with uh, a plethora of business leaders. And I'm sure we'll get more into those discussions as well. Uh, but they're also coming with a lot of problems. Uh, because the other ch big difference I see between 2011 and now is, as I said, one, I think a relationship that's broader and deeper. The Korean-American component of this, the... the, the uh, uh, the popularity of Korean culture, all of that kind of infused this um, this state visit with with just a lot more pizzazz, I think, okay. and a lot more sort of sense of grassroots support than was true even 12 or 13 years ago. Um, but we're also in this this geopolitical time of the tensions, you know, where suddenly they're having to talk about Taiwan and putting things about Taiwan in a statement. Uh, we're talking about essentially protectionism, although we don't use that word, but it sure looks like protectionism to a lot of the, com the country companies who came here. So uh, I, I think it, it was a, a moment when we realized how much more, how truly, I mean, to sound like the rhetoric, rich and, and, and resilient and filled with vitality the U.S.-Korea relationship is and how genuine the real commitment is. But at the same time, it's a much more complicated agenda uh, with answers that seem to be far, far more complex. Right. You know, it's getting the diplomatic weeds a little bit, but I mean, the, the fact that it's a state visit, as you mentioned, is a big deal in itself. It's rare. State visits don't happen very often. And it's probably worth remembering, it's not a slight to Moon Jae-in or Pak and Hay that they did not have state visits. This is the first since um, Lee Myung Bog. It's just the state visits tend to happen That's like right. on a five-year cycle. That's right. So this was time for one. That's right. And it was the 70th anniversary. Right. So the reason this was a state visit. And for the, in the 70th anniversary. No, that's right. And I think it is important to emphasize that, right, I mean, successive Korean uh, presidents, and you mentioned two recent ones, have been received very warmly. And um, I know Park and I also spoke to the Joint Session of Congress and so on and so forth. But right, that state visit does kind of elevate it. 
And, and I mean, Moon, if I remember correctly, I think met with Trump five times while in office. So, mm -hmm. I mean, there was constant meetings, even if it wasn't a state visit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, regarding to, uh, President Pakane's joint meeting of Congress address, um, something that I was observing during President Moon's speech was that he acknowledged four Korean, Amer Korean American members of Congress, which we did not have before when you know President Pakane spoke or when President Lee Myung Bak came to the United States. So I think that really shows how much Korean American community has also come evolved over the years. And as we celebrated in earlier January, this is the 120th anniversary of the first Korean immigration to the United States. So we've seen a lot of Korean American leaders from all across the country and different sectors uh, representing different you know, government officials come to Washington, D.C. and be part of the ceremony. So I think this is also important history uh, for not only for U.S. career relations, but also Korean Americans as well. Uh, and, and we'll delve into a lot of the issues that was brought up. Um, so, of course, that one of the biggest headlines was on the nuclear deterrence, right? So we had leading up to the summit, there was a lot of speculation there will be some sort of a new announcement that would be made from the summit. And we did indeed have a Washington declaration uh, that was released uh, shortly after the summit. And there are different interpretation, reaction to to the document. So I was wondering what everyone thought of the document, what does it do, and what stood out to you regarding the nuclear deterrence? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in there really quickly. I mean, just as you said, saying the document itself, I mean, this is talking about historic um, precedence. This is the first time there was a document at the presidential level specifically devoted. Yeah, I think we are. Okay. We apologize for the technical difficulties we've been having. Uh, we'll resume our conversation with you know Clint continuing his comments sure. about nuclear deterrence. I'm, I'm not sure exactly where I was cut off, but um, in the Washington Declaration, it, it clearly reflects the Biden administration's imperative to have the UN administration uh, abjure any pursuit of their own nuclear weapons and show confidence in the U.S. extended deterrence commitment. Um, this has obviously been an extensive topic of discussion. We've had our own uh, programs on it. Um, and in uh, sort of exchange for that, or trade-off for that, they, they've got this nuclear consultative group. Um, I referred to this as sort of the alliance's version of the, of the nuclear planning group in my blog piece yesterday. I'm not so sure actually that's entirely accurate, um, putting it in comparison with NATO's nuclear planning group. Mm -hmm. What we can gather so far is that it will meet at the assistant secretary level. Um, the nuclear planning group, uh, is chaired by the, the Secretary General of NATO and, and convenes regularly with defense ministers, NATO defense ministers, but also has a, a several tier sort of permanent structure, high level advisors, a, a, a nuclear planning group staff and permanent representatives. And so um, I wonder to what degree this will or will not be sort of permanently institutionalized. I did think it was interesting in the joint facts, uh, the joint fact sheet, they talked about bolstering rock education and training on nuclear deterrence to bringing South Korean uh, military personnel over to, to Pentagon to work with US officials to improve um, their functional knowledge of, of, of nuclear policy and planning. I think that's one way, that education piece, where we can see this start to be institutionalized over time. Um, but it's not clear what exactly consulting means. Is this actual cooperative decision-making or is it consulting insofar as we've informed you of a decision we've already made? Um, so, and then how this will will stand up in terms of 
shifting uh, uh, electoral winds is also another question that I know a lot of people are, are curious about. Mm -hmm. So again, time will tell. Yeah. What do you mean? Sorry? What do you, what, what do you mean by electoral wins? Sorry, well, just, you know, just an elect, you know, how elections will go in either country. Obviously, there's the National Assembly elections in, in South Korea uh, less than a year from now. Mm -hmm. And then our own presidential election will have a distinct effect on the degree to which and how this nuclear planning group, excuse me, consultative group operates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure it's helpful to, cooperate, to um, compare the nuclear consultative group to the NATO's nuclear planning group. You know, the NATO structure was made years ago. Mm. Our NATO members have nuclear weapons other than the United States. So the situation is very different. Well, that's, so, my, that's my right. Point so the NCG could be very different, yeah. not better or worse, just different. Different. And, and of necessity, it would be. But the nuclear planning group also uh, involves members that are, are not part of the nuclear sharing portion. It's, right. Yeah. It's, you know, they have, it says specifically in their, in their guidelines that they have, uh, they play a role in, in planning and decision-making, irrespective of whether or not they possess nuclear weapons. So that piece of it would be applicable if it were to, in some way, approximate mm -hmm. the, the, the U.S. ROC nuclear consultative group, the nuclear planning group. They're, so it doesn't doesn't necessitate that the actual possession of nuclear weapons. Yeah, my, my other footnote would be that I think the nuclear part of deterrence has been overemphasized. Yeah. There's ways to deter nuclear weapons other than having nuclear weapons. I think the U.S. and Korea are advanced countries. We should be talking about AI, um, directed energy weapons. There, there are things we can do other than nuclear to deter North Korea. But our, our own nuclear posture review and doctrine explicitly states that those, those it does highlight those capabilities, but it says they're supplements to not a replacement of nuclear deterrence. Right. So, so we'd have to change our own fundamental policy. So on AI, there is a DOD working group with about 20 countries that Korea is part of on trying to determine the ethics of AI and war and what the rules should be. Um, and I think, to be honest, when we look at any s summit meeting, there's always these questions of, you know, what are we doing bilaterally? What are we doing regionally? What are we doing globally? And I think AI and defense is something that really kind of has to be done more collaboratively. It's kind of hard to really see it as a bilateral issue, but I, you're right. I mean, this is gonna be much more important to defense and national security than nuclear weapons will be because of how this could change the way wars are fought. Um, so we definitely need to be having the Koreans as part of this conversation. I think the other thing though, for me, that stood out about the extended deterrence aspect, and you mentioned, you know, that, you know, the NPT, so if you go to the joint statement, it actually sort of couples this and it goes a bit farther. It says that the two countries will work to strengthen the non-proliferation mm -hmm. regime. And so I think that's important. It's not just that we've agreed with Korea, okay, this issue of whether you might develop your own independent nuclear weapon is something that we're putting behind us because we now have full confidence in the deterrence, but it's also that we're going to go a step further and try to take and strengthen the regime itself. And I think that that, if we follow through on that is kind of a key point because one of the questions in this whole debate was sort of, if South Korea were to go nuclear, how does that then affect countries, not just in Northeast Asia, sure. but beyond the region as well? Yeah, I mean, to pick up on that, I mean, let's keep in mind that, that this document, and it is, you know, important that it was issued as a separate document called the Washington Declaration. This was not embedded in the joint statement. These are public documents, and a lot of times, yes, time will tell how they play out. You know, it talks about tabletop exercises. It talks, it uses words like planning. You know, it doesn't say what level, so on and so forth. And it's not by any means the first time we've talked about deterrence. And again, I think sometimes, and I, I don't want to sort of be too simplistic about this, but we assume that we're all we all know what we're talking about when we say extended deterrence or deterrence. I mean, the U.S. and South Korea have been deterring North Korean aggression for 70 years. 
That's what the alliance is. Uh, and it has done that successfully for the most part. I mean, for just about the whole part. Things started to change in terms of how we thought about extended deterrence within this, although, and it extended deterrence meaning, I think, deterring against a nuclear threat, right? That's generally the way people mean extended deterrence. You deter against a lot of things, like, like shelling attacks on islands, right, and crossing the DMZ. But extended deterrence usually is used to mean the nuclear umbrella, right? So the U.S. has nuclear weapons, so its allies doesn't need them because we extend that nuclear deterrence to our allies. That has come under question in South Korea. And you mentioned some of the reasons it has to do with politics in this country, frankly, and perceptions about the United States. It has to do with the fact that North Korea has, has now made it very clear, at least in terms of its own declarations, that it has no intention of ever giving up its nuclear weapons and in fact is, has accelerated the development of its capabilities. Uh, and you have a South Korea that is technologically you know, more, uh, more capable than ever. But South Korea started trying to develop a nuclear weapon, as you know well, in the 1970s. So, you know, this is so so it's not surprising in some ways that this has become a political imperative to reassure. And I think sometimes it's important to think about the word reassurance as well as deterrence. This is about reassuring our ally that we're there for them, Absolutely. whatever comes. And I think this is what we see language there that's tried to do this constructed to do that, as well as, and I agree with Troy, to make clear that, that the Biden administration, the United States, regards the Republic of Korea, South Korea, as a key member of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which you only are in if you uh, are either one of the, if you like legacy uh, uh, nuclear weapons holding states, committed someday to giving them up, or you pledge not to have them. And once you leave that treaty, I guess, then you can't have civilian nuclear cooperation anymore. You yeah. can't have, so there's a whole debate, I think, that's only, that will continue in Korea. I don't think so, this is going to be the last word on it. There will be a discussion about it. And as you say, we've, we've had some scholars come in and try to contribute to that discussion. But I think to answer your question, saying this declaration, I see it as more of a political effort to reassure and to create some mechanisms, which actually are kind of extended mechanisms, there was already a de deterrence committee that was set up, uh, you know, about, again, about a decade ago when North Korea was really ramping up. So, you know, you could say, well, we can have that committee, but no, let's, let's put out something else there. And, you know, by the leaders acknowledging this is a priority for us, hope to not only reassure the South Korean public, but also, I mean, I think that speech to the joint session is also saying the U.S. is going to be, in a bipartisan basis, behind South Korea and behind the alliance. So all that's part of the reassurance, which I think is one of the major messages coming out of the summer. Right, I, I definitely agree. I think the reassurance part has been um, debated a lot and mentioned, in the, especially in the Korean media. So I have, having something in writing, which doc, this document does, it's definitely a, a proof that you know, U.S. was always serious, but this is we have this in writing, and I'm sure you know, as you, everyone said, uh, well, moving forward, we'll hear more about it, what the details would be. Uh, but or I not. Or not. <laughs> no, I was, was going to make the exact point. That one of the ironies is if the nuclear consultant group works really well, we'll never know it. Uh, nuclear planning necessarily secret. So right. you have to imply a certain amount of trust right. here. And one more thing, I think this is a good time to plug KEI's publication. Uh, so Clint and Andy Hong worked on a special publication on the South Korean nuclear armament debate recently. So if you are interested, we covered historical, domestic, and international uh, implications of the whole debate. So it's, on, it's available on our website. Uh, so switching gears, in addition to the nuclear deterrence, there's a lot of focus on the economic security, economic cooperation between two countries. And we know uh, President Yoon traveled with the 
largest business delegation to the United States, and there were a lot of MOUs signed, a lot of business investment announcements. So I would like to get your thoughts on what are some of the one that you found interesting or surprising related to uh, the business-related or in economic cooperation side. Well, I mean, Mark, you early on mentioned the investment side of things. And, you know, President Biden stressed that, you know, basically since he's come to office, Korean companies have pledged to invest up to $100 billion in the United States and things like semiconductors, EV batteries, electric vehicles, and other sort of key areas. But I think to me what's interesting and is important about this summit is we actually saw investment announcements of a significant amount going back to Korea from U.S. companies. So you have uh, Semion, which is a semiconductor company that already has a presence in South Korea that's going to expand their operations there. Uh, you have Plugon, which is going to take and also invest in Korea, and they do uh, fuel cell technology. We have investments on hydrogen, which is another area where the U.S. and Korea are working to try and commercialize hydrogen as a clean fuel. Um, and you know, even beyond that, um, and you know, saying I want to get your thoughts as well on this Netflix two and a half billion dollars over five years in Korean content. And I mean, I think when I look at U.S. Korea cooperation, you know, we like to talk about win-wins. Netflix and its partnership with, create, with creative, con creative producers in South Korea is one of the big win-wins in that Korean content is now all around the world and is hugely popular. And Netflix is a part of a platform, so both have really benefited from this relationship. But I think the fact that we're now focusing more not just on basically securing our supply chains, quote-unquote, in the United States, but with our partners like South Korea is important because these supply chains overlap. They run through multiple countries. You can't produce and develop everything in the United States, so we have to take and have solid investments both in Korea and, to be honest, we need to start talking about how do we do cross investment with Japan because Japan plays an important role in the semiconductor industry with the EU where a lot of the equipment is made. So how do we make these investments sort of work across all the key partners? And, and, and who is we? Because it used to be that the businesses yeah. made these decisions. So that gets into the whole, you know, industrial policy era that we're yeah. in. But I, I wanted to hear from, from, from saying about Netflix, because I remember reading in the Korean newspapers over the last couple of years, is, mm -hmm. there's been more and more, you know, Korean content on Netflix. I subscribed because yeah. of that. Um, that, uh, that there were complaints in Korea that the, Kore the Korean producers were getting underpaid. They were kind of like, they were a low labor you know, market. I mean, is, is, is Netflix, what are they investing in? Are they just going to raise everybody's, you know, what they pay for Korean content? Well, that's a, that's a good point. So I know there's been a lot of popular content, Korean content on Netflix, and Netflix is in, obviously investing in the Korean market as well. Um, I, I believe the biggest complaint was that in the beginning, uh, Netflix buys all the rights of the content. Um, and if it goes well, that's great. But if it doesn't go well, Netflix is also responsible because it's buying the whole content. So in, in that sense, Netflix is taking that risk up front. Um, and that means the people who made Squid Game didn't make that much money on it. I, I don't think they did afterwards. But maybe when they were working on the season two, maybe they'd renegotiate a contact. But when it comes to filming the content in the beginning, all the rights goes to Netflix, and there's no additional kind of you know profit sharing to um, in that sense. That's my understanding. Um, but to back to Troy's point, it is a win-win in a way that Korean creators, they have more creativity and room and funding, to be fair, uh, when they have, you know, when work with Netflix compared to other maybe cable TV channels or other uh, network um, distributors in, in Korea. And for Netflix, they have, 
you know, different content that they can, you know, use their platform to show to many countries all globally that is proven to be popular as well. So um, I do think it's the win-win for both sides. And for me, I found the timing of the investment announcement interesting because it was one of the first meetings that President Yoon had in the United States. And he was scheduled to meet with other Motion and Pictures Association and other um, uh, other platform leaders, but the fact that this was the very first meeting he had, and the, the fact that this was the very first announcement that was made, and to me, I think that signals how important and how serious Netflix is in investing in Korean content um, and Korean market. Well, I think it also demonstrates what Troy was alluding to, which is the sensitivity in a way that there is in Korea about there's been this very steady drumbeat of of news about huge Korean firm investment in the United States, and you know we welcome that. Uh, but you know, remember when the shoe's on the other foot, kind of, and you have a Korean domestic audience saying, "Well, are these jobs? Are we losing these jobs?" It's the same kind of you know debate here: Are we losing these jobs to uh, uh, to another country? Are they going elsewhere uh, rather than right here in Korea, where you know we want to, we want to see investment here? So I think being able to take that message of American investment in Korea, and especially when it gets tied into the effort to have a higher tech kind of uh, cooperation, that's uh, that's a good that's a good political message as well. Right. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, there were a lot of business people here, and 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 uh, I think you know sometimes it's a it's, it's you know a summit. You've got so many things going on, and everything's about the president and who gets into the meetings and everything else. You know, it can be, and then you have the chairs of all mm -hmm. these big big companies, and it was amazing. They were they were all here. They knew how important this was. But I think part of it is because we are in a kind of this brave new world of and I'm going to say the words of the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips Act and export controls and a lot of things that really do affect existing businesses, existing trade and supply chains, but also how you shape your investments and your partnerships mm -hmm. going forward. And I think that there's, there's, I think we're still finding our way on both sides into what the relationship is between governments and industry. And you say, who makes these decisions and what are the implications? And I don't know, I mean, others, uh, Mark, you may, and, and Troy, you may have followed it more closely, but I mean, I was struck by the fact that there's very little mention in the public documents of the Inflation Reduction Act, which was item number one after it was passed and after uh, there was a realization this was going to have an immediate impact on Hyundai, which had uh, committed to such a huge investment here in its EV uh, 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 production uh, in the United States. Um, and now the CHIPS Act and what that means for supply chains, again, investment in China, sharing of, 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 uh, of confidential technology that, uh, that, that uh, companies use, how they qualify for subsidies. I mean, all of these things, again, I, they have... They're enormously politically sensitive for both sides. Yeah. And, and, and because these are new kinds of, at least, you know, of investment and approach, we do have things like, happily, from the free trade agreement, of course, we have committees that can talk about these things, government to government. But you do need to get, I mean, you mentioned a number of things, and we're throwing them around, and I feel like I'm just talking word salad when I say them, but, you know, AI and quantum and, you know, this and that and the other thing. But who can really talk about them? Yeah, and who can read the legislation and figure out what that means if you want to build a tractor factory in Georgia, which I met a guy who is, you know? <laughs> How do you figure that out? I, 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 oh, sorry. You yeah, know, I, I would say I think the summit actually changed the conversation about that a little bit. Before the summit, mm. a lot of the speculation was, well, will they be able to announce fixes? Right. Chip sack and the IRA. Are they going to announce the U.S. is making some concessions on that to eliminate discriminatory parts? But we've had eight months of experience now with both the IRA and the CHIPS Act. 
And by this point, I think we've gotten to realize that Macquarie is going to do really well out of both these acts. They're going to benefit from them. So by the end of the summit, especially in the, the remarks made before the Congress, you can you can hear that the CHIPS Act and the IRA are probably going to do Corey a lot of good. It's a big change then. It is yeah. a big change. But there's still a lot of complexity to navigate through that. And, yeah. and, and all these, these companies coming here are a part of trying to do that. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And to sort of build on what you were saying, Kathy, uh, if we look at the references in the joint statement to the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act, they're both in the context of the course FTA. It says we'll discuss mm-hmm. semiconductors, yeah. EV batteries, and other issues in the consultative mm-hmm. committees in the course FTA and other appropriate venues, which I wonder if that means Capitol Hill, because... You know, if we look at the Inflation Reduction Act, I think the Biden administration has gone as far as they can within the letter of the law to take and try and address not just South Korean concerns, but Japanese concerns and European concerns. And so if we're going to take and address the issue that specifically Hyundai and Kia have on the assembly provision, we're going to have to amend the legislation. That means Capitol Hill. And so I think when I look at the statements, a lot of this discussion on these issues there has been progress made. A lot of it was actually made before the summit. So I think, you know, when we hear people talk about like, well, there wasn't a big announcement. It's like, well, I'm not surprised because sort of what could be done within the regulatory guidance has kind of been done. And on chips, there's discussion of basically better coordinated export controls and other things of that nature, which suggests maybe there's some discussion on some leeway additionally on the chips side as well. But we'll have to kind of see how that comes out. But I think to me, the big missed opportunity in this summit wasn't on EV batteries and on chips because, as I said, you know, I think what could be done had been done, but was actually on the national security provisions that Trump put on steel um, because, you know, this is something where we've negotiated a new agreement with the United Kingdom, we've negotiated a new agreement with Japan, we've negotiated a new agreement with the Japanese. Korea is the one country we had an agreement with that we haven't changed it, and Korea has been pushing really hard to try and get this changed. And I think this could have been an easy deliverable for the Biden administration and South Korea to be able to go home and say, we've, even if it's not completely what maybe South Korea would like, to say we've at least improved this situation and that was just totally missed and mm. they had adjusted up the quotas right for, or for Japan just and for, 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 for so the yeah UK, right, so now basically the way it works for Japan the UK the European Union if I remember correctly is that all of them can ship to the United States under our normal tariff steel levels without the punitive 25 percent up to the average of their three years before all these provisions were put in place yeah and Korea right now is actually capped at that. They can't send more than what their three-year average was. And so if you're a Japanese company and you or Japan and they exceed that amount, well, then they pay the tariff after that. But basically everybody else in the world is doing that. Korea is literally capped at what they can send, so they can't expand. Yeah. And also the way Korea's uh, provisions work is they don't have flexibility to send. The U.S. sets the specific item lines. Yeah. So if, say, Korean firms decide we really need to send more rolled steel, they can't do that. Yeah. So I think this could have been a real win so, for the summit. I'm curious, right? Because this is this is not a new conversation, right? Yeah. This is people have been noting this for like several years now, uh, and they do mention in the joint statement that steel is one of the areas, yeah. right? That which was sort of notable. So I'm curious, and maybe you don't have the answer to this, but like to what extent did the rock side maybe attempt to do this, but were rebuffed, or were not? I mean, I don't know. So I know they've been talking about it for a long time. I wonder. If Part of the conversation just revolved a lot more around yeah, chips and EV batteries. Uh, but I mean, this is something to where I think the US, knowing the political challenges in South Korea from those bills, could have tried to do something on this to try and say, 
listen, we can't help you here, but we can help well, you on this. Yeah. It's sort of a lower hanging fruit. Right? Yeah. It's been out there for longer. It seems easy. But is there a domestic political that. reason in the U.S. why that's hard for the Biden administration? So on the one hand, you could say unions because of the steel unions mm-hmm. and the steel companies. But that being said, since we've already we changed this the for the others, the big political hit on this has already been taken. So I think this is something they could have done. And it's what I would have recommended they do, because I do think from a legal standpoint, they are kind of hemmed in on chips and EV batteries. In some of these trade discussions, it may have been the U.S. said, I'm just speculating, yeah. that there are things we can talk about and there are things we can't talk about. There's no point spending a lot of time talking about steel because we're just not going to change it. So that may have changed the conversation. I wish you'd been in the Rose Garden for the joint press conference. Oh. <laughs> That's question. Right. Oh. Steel is so be a last question, you know, someday. Um, but, you know, even just sort of look at this, there's other things that I think we could have done. So we have a joint working group with the European Union on green steel. And this is going to take and really affect what the conditions are for steel coming into the United States in the future are going to look like. Japan and Korea are basically outside of China, the two other big steel producers in the world, and India as well. The fact that we're not talking to Korea and Japan with the European Union on setting what the standards for green steel look like, I think is a long-term concern, both for our relations with our two allies in Asia, but also in sort of how we take and develop our economic policy going forward. You know, we need to try and bring, and this is what I was talking about earlier, when I said, you know, some issues aren't just simply bilateral. And so the U.S. and the European Union are doing this on a bilateral level. There are two key partners. And let's be honest, Japan and Korea are important for the EU as well. So it's not as though we can make the case well, but the Europeans aren't really concerned about things in Asia. So, yeah. And given POSCO's deep interest in green steel, it's kind of odd they're not yeah. in that conversation. And the fact that they may be close to one of the leaders on this issue too. Right. So yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up Japan because I did want to talk about Japan. And of course, a lot of things happened leading up to the summit, and, and that includes President Yoon's meeting with uh, Prime Minister Kishida um, a few weeks before. And I was, I would like to get your thoughts on, um, do you think President Yoon's diplomatic deal with uh, Tokyo has reflected in, in the, uh, the state visit discussion statements? And what are your kind of uh, outlook for the U.S., Korea, Japan, and cooperation? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was specifically mentioned, right, in the, mm-hmm. in the joint statement right. and, and in the context of President Biden praising Yoon for that effort. Um, and this is something that, you know, for us here, we know it's a long-standing sentiment in D.C. They'd really like to see tighter bilateral relations between Seoul and Tokyo so as to improve trilateral relations. Um, and, and Yoon really, quite frankly, sticking his neck out there and leaning forward in a way that no previous South Korean president progressive or conservative ha- has done in such a way, I think has been really welcomed here in DC. Um, and as Troy said, they've, they've already taken the measures, you know, Japan and South Korea to put each other back on their white list to you know, remove their, their, uh, their neck case or claim at the WTO yeah. um, um, to sort of restitch their economic relations or unencumber them. Um, I wonder though how, um, one of the things I mentioned before was, you know, elections is how you have to have a strong or at least a somewhat permissive domestic political base to, to sort of move this forward. So I wonder how, depending on how the National Assembly elections go in April of next year, that will affect how far you can, can sort of push this. Because if he's if they if their their minority position shrinks smaller, um, you know, that, that lame duck effect even earlier in the South presidency than, than you would normally have. And so um, I know there's a lot of praise for this, but we'll see. Well, I think we'll know before April uh, if this is going to 
be on a kind of a sustainable course towards improvement, gradual improvement. Yeah, I, I did notice the statement mentioned some specific things that are being resumed right away, and there have been several things. So things have been quietly happening. And I would just uh, amend what you said about, uh, you know, President Yoon has taken a bigger risk than any other Korean president. I, he's done it in a way, I think, kind of more unilaterally. I mean, Kim Dae-jung, I mean, did some things that were quite, I think, statesmanlike and courageous. And in fact, President Yoon has recognized him for that, notwithstanding sure. he came from the other party uh, in terms of trying to put Korea, Japan on a more sustainable, forward-looking course many years ago. And he's kind of cited that as an inspiration in a sense mm. for that. But, but yeah, I think the, the challenge for President Yoon has been that he, as, as you said, I agree, he's, he, he laid out um, uh, a position uh, after this, this long uh, downturn in, in, in Korea-Japan relations without really uh, doing the sort of, you know, waiting to see how, how Japan was going to reciprocate, if you like. Um, so, so, yes, the trip to Tokyo was kind of the next step. But I think what we're going to see in the coming months is, I mean, there's some talk that Kushida may go to Seoul sometime. I think we'd have to watch and see what happens there. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, Japan is, is hosting the G7 sure. in Hiroshima uh, in, in the summer, I think in June, very soon. And uh, I think the, the notion is that President Yoon may have an invitation to go to that. So, you know, if we see uh, things continue to go in a kind of a positive direction, I wouldn't be surprised to see a, a trilateral summit of the three leaders in, in Hiroshima, uh, as well as a bilateral. Um, and, and again, one would hope to see more, more, more of this being filled in. Yeah. But right now, I think what we are seeing, as you say, in South Korea is uh, a public that, you know, compared to past years, you could say, well, it's been, it's, it, you know, a little bit more wait and see mode. You know, there's, there's, there's certainly uh, public opinion polls that suggest put it mildly, skepticism about where this is going to go. But I think there's still some room here for this to, to work. So I, I hope that this summit, and we have to again, wait and see, as we're saying, sure. that you know, gave President Yoon a, a little bit more momentum, as well as a message to, to Prime Minister Kushida that this is very important to the U.S. and that we need to use this window we have to move it forward. But I think it's very, very delicate right now. Uh, and, and by... You know, uh, once we get through the G7, I'd say let's 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 take stock of it. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you. I mean, it's the, it was the unilateral piece exactly that I had in mind. Yeah, when I said leaning forward. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. I mean, and I think it's already maybe not officially um, affirmed, but a bilateral and a trilateral meeting, I think, are. I think it's sort of rumored. Of our it's rumored. I don't know if it's been announced. It, it, yeah. it helps to see Japan covering the same international framework. So yes. G7 is one. Another one is the NATO summit in Vilnius mm -hmm. in July, mm -hmm. where both right. Japan and Korea will right. be there. Yeah. So that, that helps to have that perspective. And it helps, too, that uh, Korean forces help to evacuate Japanese citizens yeah. from Sudan. Yeah. That kind of thing makes a difference to people. Yeah. No, it, obviously, it's hard for all of us sitting here in Washington, D.C. to judge the public mood. It's hard to judge it when you're walking on the streets of Seoul, too. But at least, you, but, you know, uh, uh, what I hear from people is is that there is a, a widespread understand, well, an understanding that given the geopolitical environment, <laughs> given, given the economic environment, that um, given the challenges from China, that Korea and Japan need to have a more constructive relationship. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of still a lot of room for, for debate and disagreement within, I think, the Korean body politic and the Korean public about who, you know, who goes first and who, what needs to be done and, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, we saw how delicate the issue was with respect to, I mean, the one sort of small controversy so far that I know about the visit was 
uh, a remark that that President Yoon made in the Washington Post and how that was translated uh, with respect to what he said about Japan. So you see the incredible sensitivity there is to this, but that there is public opinion that says we'd like to see this move forward, but under what conditions? So it's going to take really careful management. And I think this is the kind of issue that Again, quietly, I would imagine, and I hope actually, that Washington and, and will be in close touch with Tokyo and Seoul to try to try to kind of nurture this along and make sure that it's going to be sustainable uh, in uh, in both countries. Yeah, not not to belabor the point, but I, but I think that the public opinion versus political opposition mm-hmm. piece is a very important distinction mm-hmm. to draw, right? Mm-hmm. Even even when the relationship was recently mm-hmm. more in its doldrums in 2018, 19, public opinion polling in in both countries, Japan mm-hmm. and South Korea, was cons- consistently showed. And this is somewhat contradictory, but widespread belief that it's a critical relationship mm-hmm. and that people do want to see it improve, mm-hmm. but at the same time, low favorability numbers, right? That they, um, so, yeah. and of course, if you ask someone in the streets, they'll give you their opinion. Mm-hmm. You can say the same thing with the nuclear weapon piece. Should mm-hmm. we get our own nukes? Right. Sure. But that doesn't mean they're demanding it mm-hmm. uh, because they're not on the mm-hmm. nuke side. And, you know, there's not widespread protest in the street mm-hmm. over what's happened so far. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, I think I agree with you. <laughs> All right, we have one online question from Dr. Dr. Satulamai. Uh, so he said he would welcome if anything was said, suggested about uh, South Korea's view of Quad AUKUS, and especially given South Korea's new Indo-Pacific strategy. They they did mention AUKUS in yeah. the statement. There was no mention of Quad in the statement. No. And you know, I think when we look at this, uh, so one of the things that's interesting to me is. If you look at this, they broke this joint statement up into global, regional, and then bilateral cooperation. And one of the things that's threaded through all three is climate change and clean tech. And now it doesn't say quad, but there's a quad working group on this issue. So, I mean, that could be one form they could work through. Uh, But I think that to me is maybe the one area. But I also think we're kind of at a point to where we're sort of realizing that the quad is a platform for some things, but that we need to look beyond the quad for other issues. Uh, because you know, some of them, like I was mentioning steel, if you think about steel, it's gonna be a much different grouping than it would be for some things you might do in the quad. And so I think it's matching the right partners in the right place that's going to matter. I think for a while, I, I mean, at least in kind of the public discourse, there were, you know, whether whether South Korea joined the quad, again, maybe this is in the South Korean press a little bit, I can't remember, whether it was, was kind of the litmus test of, was you know was was South Korea on board with the Indo-Pacific strategy? Well, now you know South Korea has an Indo-Pacific strategy. They talk a lot about that. So I think I think that that notion of you know are you going to get your membership card or not you know has become a little bit less salient. Yeah, I agree. My, and. Um, and, and as you say, I, there's all kinds of formations. I mean, I have Korea and what, uh, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand are in some sort of foursome oh. to do something. Yeah, yeah. NATO, like a golf NATO game. Plus. I don't know, but, you know, it's a NATO, is it a NATO plus? Yeah, but NATO, NATO, NATO yeah. I, I, so many, but I think we'll see more of this, you know, yeah. kind of a proliferation of, <laughs> of, of many laterals. Yeah, many laterals, a new word. And then there's the organizations. There's who's actually talking to who. You know? Yeah. I think the quad strikes me a little bit obsolete. I think it was a really good pre-COVID organization, but I don't see it being all that active today. I also I think the real conversation is going on among a quint, which is informal. No one talks about it, but the U.S., EU, Japan, Australia, South Korea talk all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, even if we look at the quad, I mean, I think there's questions in the United States because what's happened since the Ukraine war, exactly. you know, India being the largest purchaser of Russian oil. Um, we've kind of somewhat taken a, like we understand approach to that, but I think it raises questions because, you know, India is very close to Russia. Um, we have these Russian tie 
Russia-China ties are developing, you know, how does that then fit in the Quad? Where will India lie in a lot of these issues? And we know even on a lot of economic issues, India has, you know, historically been very challenging to work with. So, you know, I think the salience of the Quad, as you mentioned, Kathy, may be somewhat passing. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're almost to the end of the time, but I did want to ask and then get your thoughts on people-to-people -people ties and exchanges. Uh, before the summit, there was a lot of speculation. There will be some sort of announcement to encourage more travel and exchanges between two countries. And on the, the fact sheet, I did see something about the Korea West program, which I know, Ambassador Stevens, you were a big part of when, you, when it was first uh, started. So I would like to get your thoughts on how, uh, how it came together. And, and of course, as a KEI, we are happy to, we're happy host of a Korea West intern and then what, what your views of the, the cultural cult, uh, people-to-people exchanges? Yeah, I mean, it's it's traditional to, to put a lot of emphasis on people-to-people, -people, but I'm, you know, I, I'm a real believer in it, and I think and I think actually we can see the presidents are too. Uh, the WEST program stands for what? Work, English, Study, and Travel. Yes. So it's all WEST. I, I can't believe I pulled that out of some <laughs> but, but actually, and I, this is a little bit of my chance to name drop at the summit. When uh, when I was talking with the Foreign Minister Pak Jin uh, uh, earlier this week at the summit, he came up to me and said, uh, we're expanding the WEST program. And because it was actually, he, he and his capacity as chair of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee at the National Assembly at that time, and I as ambassador in 2009, we uh, we launched it. Uh, and it was an initiative that came out of actually President George W. Bush and Noam Hyun. So, uh, and the whole idea, you asked about West, you're going to get West, so I'll say, um, was, and it was, you know, at that time and still, uh, South Korea sends so many students to the United States, you know, per capita the most students of any country in the world, obviously in pure numbers less than India, still China. even China, and China, well, China less now, but yeah, but still, but still lots of students, but it costs a lot of money. And the notion was, and this gets to a very, a an issue even more salient now, the issue, sense of inequality and opportunity, you know, something deeply felt if you've watched Parasite or, you know, or Squid Game or, you know, and, and um, uh, but to make sure that, um, not that that reflects Korea, but uh, to make sure that, that there were opportunities for others who wouldn't come here for maybe a full degree, but could come and do an internship, some English study, and uh, a little bit of travel. So, special program. Uh, it gets funding from the, uh, from the South Korean government. We've had a number of North Korean defectors come on the program as well. And it's going to be increased, which is funding. So that's great. And it's great to see again. I, I mentioned because there's continuity, right, as well as the notion of building on past past programs. And similarly with the Fulbright program, and most people are familiar with the Fulbright program in different countries or different aspects of it. You were a Fulbrighter, right? Uh, my predecessor was. Your predecessor was. I'm sorry. <laughs> forgive me. Uh, we've, we've had Fulbrighters here as well, but uh, doing a variety of things. But this full, this is money. And again, I actually ran into somebody from the State Department that, uh, who'd worked on this. He said, we're so happy. He said, we found some money. Mm -hmm. And each, each government's going to give, I don't know the amounts, but some millions of dollars for a special Fulbright program that is going to, to, to recruit um, kind of mid-level, I took it, or even senior level uh, uh, scientists and engineers, mm -hmm. people in the so-called STEM fields to do joint research and work in, in, in respective countries. So it's a different kind of Fulbright program, more targeted, and uh, you know, f supports these other goals that are all strewn throughout the uh, joint statement about uh, this work in all the emerging uh, emerging technological fields. So, so yeah, I think that is that is big news. Um, you know, there are other agreements to cooperate in the areas of overseas assistance, especially in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we've done that before, but there's there's money and political commitment coming from it. 
And finally, and we kind of alluded to this at the beginning, and 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 you emphasized it, saying so well, uh, so well too. The the um, the sense that the the Korean American community here. I mean, of course, at every you know, I've done Ireland and the UK too. I mean, you always emphasize that's what we're proud of in the United States that we we have these deep people to people ties that that do inform our foreign policy, that do inform the the texture of our relationships. And, you know, and in this area, this, this is just a, a banner, banner time for Korea and Korean Americans. And like you, I was, you know, so moved to see, we went from zero Korean Americans in Congress to four in one year, three, three of whom are women, two from each party and from very different backgrounds. You know, it was another thing, it's not like every Korean American is a Korean American, you know, everyone has their own story. And, uh, and at the same time, I said, we had, uh, I thought it was great that the State Department invited to the lunch that the Vice President and the Secretary of State hosted yesterday all these elected officials. So we met we met elected officials from Oklahoma, right? Yes. And, and uh, yeah, I learned about the Korean American the Korean American community in Oklahoma. I mean, who knew? Right. Right. <laughs> but it's not just Minari, you know. It's really so. Uh, so this this really just just gave a great energy, I think, to the whole summit. But. Uh, you know, it, it also just reminds us that, that this is also part of what's made the relationship so special. Right. <laughs> really, really special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, we're getting close to the end uh, event end time, but I did want to kind of go around and if you would like to mention anything that we didn't get to address t today during the event, um, your last minute thoughts. And I know we didn't get to uh, the emerging technology details, but if there's anything else that you'd like to share, about your observation from this week and moving forward? The menu for the state dinner. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought it was a spectacular menu. It looked just yeah. terrific. And for me, it's a metaphor for the whole summit because it wasn't Korean dishes and American dishes being served separately. Mm -hmm. It was fusion yeah. of the two cuisines. Mm -hmm. So the kind of blending of American and Korean ingredients creates something exciting. I think it was a great, great metaphor. Right. And then the chef was Korean-American, Edward Lee. Um, so that's also another highlight of the Korean-Americans being involved in both official and in um, unofficial capacity and in, in putting the whole state visit together. The Tenjang caramel was very interesting, <laughs> I have to say. Clint? Uh, go to someone else first. Okay. Sure, yeah. So I'll just say uh, two quick things. One, you'd mentioned saying, you know, this, I mean, get the name long because it's very long. It's the New Technologies and Emerging Technologies Working Group that's going to be run by the National Security Advisors level. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this develops. You know, my initial instinct is, is that now that we're in an era to where national security and economics, while they always somewhat merged, are gonna be much more explicitly merged, that this is gonna, on key sensitive technologies that have national security implications, they're going to start working mm -hmm. on export controls and other things related to those issues, and that the commercial issues will go to the chorus working groups. That would be how I'd see this going forward, but I think this will be interesting to watch. And then, if you look in the section on regional cooperation, um, there's one or two sentences on economic coercion and the two countries being against it. To me, it's very interesting that that issue is put in the regional cooperation mm -hmm. section, which I think signals clearly, we'll say which country they're talking about. And I'll leave it to our audience to uh, guess on that. Okay, I think I yes. did, yeah. So um, what, one, one piece is um, the, the the Taiwan angle, which is which was mentioned in the in the joint statement, the importance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. But that's that's not a new formulation that goes back two years to the Moon Biden statement, and Yoon has uh, increasingly over time expanded that statement to say the importance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait to the Indo-Pacific, to the international community, and has done this in a trilateral statement, and then in the South Korean Indo-Pacific strategy, 
specifically linked that to peace and security in the Korean Peninsula, which was the first time I'd ever seen that formulation. Um, so I'm interested to see, um, I thought it might be, I was sort of surprised that it was back to the same formulation that was with uh, Moon and Biden, mm -hmm. um, but I'm interested to see how this develops moving forward because this is um, obviously a, a very complex challenge and one that raises all sorts of questions about the alliance in its economic mm -hmm. and security components. So, and also in light of the, the spat between the Chinese foreign ministry and the yes. Chinese foreign ministry the week before right. uh, you arrived. So it was sort of quiet. It was something that was noted for sort of toned down. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm going to go back to on, on, on the, the sort of premise that, uh, that alliances and democracies do have to enjoy public support and some public awareness and understanding. I have to give President Yoon very high marks for being quite brave in, in you know, in coming to a summit where he knows he's going to be scrutinized, especially by the Korean press where he came in with people worried about, as we sometimes worry about President Biden, what kind of gaffe is he gonna make? What's yeah. gonna happen? And he did something which is very, very hard for, for a foreign president to do. And he spoke in English. Yes. And giving a speech in English to the Congress, that's what those members of Congress are taking back. He, yes, he read it. He read it clearly. He had you know, many, many standing ovations. And they're gonna go back to those districts and that's what they're gonna remember is not you know, all the details with all due respect that we've talked about here today. They're gonna to remember that. And they're gonna remember that a dinner that he sang really well, American Pie. <laughs> and some people will you know, comment in one way or the other, but I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, and, and that's what people will remember you know, a year from now or five years from now uh, about, about the summit. And I think, he, I think he did himself, but as his country and the relationship, a lot of good with that. Yeah. And that's just, that's just really quickly. Our discussion about the undulations and sort of some critiques and whatnot, this is, this is the underlying, this is the point. This is the underlying strength of, of democracies. We talk about these things. We air criticisms, and this is not the case everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I mean, that's, it's almost Pollyannish to make that observation, but mm -hmm. I think it's sometimes important to, to mm -hmm. remind us this is the very strength of the relationship, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, the fact that, I mean, the Koreans feel they can be explicit on like why they are not happy with the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, other countries, you couldn't even talk about it internally, let alone sort of on a bilateral level. Yeah, exactly. If I could add a, one last thing to it, uh, the fact that, you know, the President Yoon mentioned BTS and Squid Game in Congress and people understood what they were. I mean, that's a big change and, you know, that's a sign, the symbol that, you know, Korean culture has really traveled far in the United States, all, uh, in addition to a lot of issues that we talked about. So I want to thank you, all of you, for joining me in the conversation and all of you online watching. Uh, KEI is planning a lot of events addressing many of the things that we talked about. Um, so please stay tuned for more events coming up and with that thank you all for joining and hope everyone has a great weekend thank you, thank you.